Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. It's Friday. A good Friday to you. We hope that this uh, podcast, this live stream finds you well. Ryan Jesperson here with John Hicks in just a second. Dr. Bradley Martin, a family doctor. And then we've got a roundtable of mayors here. We're going to be talking about uh, rural politics. Not rural. That's not true necessarily. We're going to be talking about small and medium-sized communities and the politics right now of of the social issues. Things like homelessness, things like health care, the opioid crisis. We are... Uh, armed with uh, a ton of emails, feedback from you, real talkers, that we keep an eye on. Sometimes, you know, you may write into the show to talk at ryanjesperson.com, and then you may not hear your email for a while. Of course, we'd love to read everything that we get. We can't read it all, but sometimes there will be a message that resonates with us, and we'll we'll hang on to it, John. We'll essentially pin it to our board, Mm -hmm. and it becomes part of our our working list for content. So we're going to be hearing from some audience members today in relation to to some of the subject matter we're talking about. You know, for example, Ange. Ange, we're going to be reading your email today about stopping the harm, the opioid crisis. Your son, who's living on the streets right now. I'm looking forward to that. That's real life. That's real stuff. We're going to get to some of your comments on my interview with Danielle Smith yesterday. She's seeking the United Conservative Party's leadership. And Mark Charrington, too. How about him, a human rights advocate, a real talker by the name of Jennifer wrote in after the show. She said, she says, Mark Charrington was not on my radar. I had no idea who that guy was. She tuned in for the Danielle Smith interview. She says, now that guy is a legend. I saw Avnish Nanda, who's a well-known litigator. He's a lawyer and he's be Avnish does a lot of pro bono work, quite frankly, does a lot of work looking out for people, people that might otherwise not have legal representation or or might be hammered with issues. Um, They don't know how to respond. He's one of those kind of guys. You've seen him on the show several times. He called Mark Charrington an icon this morning in sharing our interview content with his followers on social media, which we sure appreciate. Well, why don't we get to it? Uh, I, w- I wanted to get to a couple of emails. It's, it's relatively rare that we'll start a show with emails, but but we want to to set the table for Dr. Bradley Martin. The doc and I don't have a script. We don't have a whole bunch of talking points we're going to get to. We, we just want to shoot the shit, basically. He's a real talker. He joins us live every single morning, and, and he sees what's happening in healthcare on the front lines. He's a, he's a healthcare practitioner. He runs his own practice. For that matter, he's, he's also an entrepreneur and a small businessman. Uh, just like every other family physician across the province and, for that matter, across the country. So I speak with Danielle Smith yesterday. You probably know. Feels like most people in Alberta at least heard of the interview, if not (laughs) checked it out. Randy wrote in to say, I listened to your interview with Danielle Smith. It was my first time tuning into Real Talk since you left the air on Chorus Radio. He says, "I've, I've never been one to write emails offering my opinion to anybody until COVID began. But listening to Real Talk irritated me. First off, you read an email that referred to her supporters as lunatics, and that's a perfect example of the dysfunction in society. Why can't we have a discussion with people that we don't agree with 100%? Danielle made it pretty clear that her partnership with Theron Fleury, they met at a stage last night, that rally down in Calgary, it was to help people dealing with mental health issues that they had through the craziness of the last two years. But as a typical member of the mainstream media, You attacked her on the more controversial opinions that Theo holds. You didn't promote the potential good 
he might have to offer people dealing with mental health issues. Randy says we're in this mess of division in our society precisely because of this. We got to focus on what people have to offer instead of what causes this division. And of course, I have a whole bunch to say about that, and you probably do too, but I'm going to keep reading the email. It's not the point. He says, you pushed hard on Danielle's proposed Sovereignty Act, Alberta Sovereignty Act. And, and again, I feel like she answered every one of your questions competently. I can't understand how you and some of your audience don't see why Alberta should be more forceful in our demands with Ottawa. This happened in the 80s with Trudeau Sr., and now with Trudeau Jr. We have these politicians that promise to stand up for Alberta but never accomplish anything, and Danielle was absolutely correct that we've been living with a lawless government over the past two years. A bunch of you took issue with that statement of hers. He says what's most disturbing is that the government doesn't seem to follow the law and nobody speaks out or stands up or holds them back. Whether or not you agree with the position of people who didn't want to get vaccinated, my position is their rights were violated through the pandemic and nobody's defending them. I mean, except for the whole trucker convoy, but I defend. He says they've now been called lunatics and a fringe minority and vilified by the rest of the population, judging these people and casting them aside instead of trying to look for commonalities over what? I've had friends lose their jobs. You know, the mainstream media making them out to be subhuman the entire time. And as for your assertion, Ryan, that approximately 90% of Albertans got vaccinated or are on board with it, that's total bullshit says Randy. Many people that I've had conversations with about getting vaccinated says the number one reason they did was to travel or to keep their job. Sure, there was a fair amount maybe that got vaccinated of their own free will, but from my context, I'd make an educated guess that 40% got it to be able to maintain their lifestyles or they were coerced to keep their jobs. So stop telling people that 90% were on board because it's not true at all. I mean, what I said was about 90% of people are vaccinated, so vaccine mandates are less relevant now than they were before, but I digress. He says, I, I believe that if Danielle does get a chance to lead this province and we can get some support from Albertans not on the wagon just yet, she'll return us to better days. But it's going to take a little faith. And your podcast demonstrates how people stand against her. But you can't deny her honesty and genuine concern for where we are headed as a province and as a nation. Start looking for things we can agree on, not things that divide us for the sake of this province or for a future we can be proud of. Stop attacking good people who want to bring prosperity and well-being to all the wonderful Albertans, even the ones we disagree with. That from Randy. Thanks for your email. Allie wrote in to say, I'm sure you're going to be swamped with responses to your Danielle Smith interview. We were. Uh, but I wanted to throw my two cents. She says, I'm a critical care ER registered nurse who for the majority of my life has identified as a white conservative Christian. I actually worked on Ed Stelmack's campaign for party leadership, which, of course, we were talking about Steady Eddie. Uh, his campaign was an example of one of those that came up the middle. Uh, people were talking about some of the you know perceived stars in the conservative movement in Alberta at that time. Jim Dinning, Gary Marr, El Stel Ed Stelmack was not a name they were mentioning. No disrespect. But he was second choice on a whole bunch of ballots. And he won. Back to Allie's email. She says, until recent years, I did not see a day where I wouldn't vote conservative. But I've never felt so disrespected by a politician than I felt during your interview with Danielle Smith. And considering what both Premier Kenny and former Health Minister Shandro have said about us healthcare workers and nurses, I feel like that, 
the bar was already set. AHS, Alberta Health Services, is responsible and, and, and what, mismanaged the pandemic because there were empty beds in rural hospitals with, what, no respiratory therapists, no ability to escalate, no advanced oxygenation therapies, no critical care capacity. So obviously, what, leadership and AHS lied and said we had nothing more to give? Go fuck yourself, Danielle. I held the hands of hundreds of Albertans as they fought for their lives. Many of them died. I worked thousands of hours over this pandemic and hundreds of forced overtime hours where I didn't have the right to leave my place of employment and go home to my family because we were so overwhelmed. You know, where were my human rights in that situation? If Danielle cares so much about mental health, I and so many of my coworkers are diagnosed with PTSD. We had time off that we needed to preserve our mental health denied because the need for our skills was too great. And then to top it off, people like her spouting stupidity contributed to an environment where we got death threats screamed into our faces. I was spat on as I tried to walk from my parking lot to work a forced overtime shift. Apologize to the pastors. Where's my apology? Where's the apology for the families who had to deal with that bullshit protest when they were coming to say goodbye to their loved ones? Danielle's not a stupid woman by any means. So the only conclusion I can come to For what she's saying is willful ignorance to push an agenda. Ambulances are absolutely a problem, like she said, but does she really think we would have all missed so simple of a solution to the problem? What she's talking about is called consolidation. We already do it. You know, so firstly, not every paramedic can take four patients. That's dependent on scope, you know, and in places, you know, where there's eight beds so they can staff them for EMS download. You know, there's already a community paramedic program running in the city of Edmonton that does exactly what she's talking about in terms of treating in place to avoid hospitalization. Interfacility transfers typically aren't coming from the same pool as the guys on the road responding to emergency calls. You know, and transfers are suspended when emergency demand is too high to meet. So for someone trying to sell herself as a premier, she needs to have a more full understanding of the problem she's trying uh, instead of suggesting solutions already in place. Uh, after listening to this interview, I have to admit that as an educated, dedicated, skilled professional in my early 30s, I don't know that I see myself continuing to live in a province that elects someone like her as our leader. That makes me so sad because I truly love Albertans and was once so proud to be from here. I hope there's a day in the future I can feel that way again. That from Allie, who worked on Ed Stelmack's leadership campaign. This one from signed off, centrist, sick and tired of the bullshit. They've asked I not use their real name. It's a beautiful name, but I love the name, but I can't use it. It's a very unique name. It's like there might be like three people in the province that have this name, so I'm not going to say it. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm so tempted to say it. I was completely disgusted, Ryan, by the feedback I saw online following your interview with Danielle Smith. A bit of background. I was involved in a campaign for the progressive conservatives during the 2012 election. Uh, You remember that was the election. A lot of people thought Danielle Smith and the Wild Rose Party might win uh, until Alan Huntsberger out of South Edmonton You know, his thing about the lake of fire surfaced, right? Like five days before the election. So this centrist says, I've never had a positive thing to say about Danielle Smith. This this UCP leadership election is not comparable to the federal conservative leadership. The winner of this contest automatically becomes the premier of Alberta. Politically engaged people assume everyone knows everything about candidates. I can tell you from experience that most people know nothing about the person they vote for on election day. When we so-called de-platform people we don't agree with, we're not accomplishing what we think we are. Just look south of the border. If engaged Albertans start stating we can't listen to candidates for premier, we will never have the province we want. 
I'm no fan of Danielle Smith. The fight with the feds is ridiculous. One room schoolhouses is a terrible idea, but we should listen to what she has to say and then rebut with facts that from centrist sick and tired of this bullshit. And I had to read this one from an appreciative Albertan who says today's show. They're talking about Thursday was awesome. All caps. They say you brought the narrative back to point when the guest was grandstanding and fear mongering. So the current government messed up absolutely everything. What? This coming from an elected politician who crossed the floor and those who voted for her? Blah, blah, blah. We all have voices. We all have a vote. Real talk helps elevate those voices as it should be. And we need more Mark Charringtons. And that's why I subscribe to and listen to Real Talk. Have a very best rest of the day. That from an appreciative Albertan. Thank you for that. We're going to bring you just a quick highlight from that interview yesterday in just a second to tee up Dr. Bradley Martin. But first, I'll remind you that this show doesn't happen without the support and commitment of sponsors like Apex Automation. We're so excited to welcome them to the fold. Apex is hiring right now. They're looking for the most talented, skilled, motivated engineers in Canada. They do work across North America, and they're growing their footprint beyond that, providing fully autonomous intuitive solutions to industry they're giving people back their time not just their clients but their staff as well and they know the secret to doing that is people they help their clients they help their partners become more efficient and more profitable meantime their employees are achieving great things reaching their full potential flexible hours professional development opportunities and a fun corporate culture trust me i host their christmas party it's off the rails You can learn more about career opportunities at Apex Automation by visiting apexautomation.ca today. John, what do you figure we should talk about with the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park today, pal? It's the type of weekend I was checking the forecast. If you live in our neck of the woods, it's an ice cream kind of a weekend. But it's also a (laughs) flamethrower, signature stack burger kind of a weekend. If you like your burger to clap back at you, you like your tongue to feel like it's burning, baby. We recommend the Flamethrower Signature Stack Burger, the Loaded Steakhouse Burger. You can't go wrong with that one either. Topped with that signature Dairy Queen onion ring on top of the all-beef patties, the cheese, the bacon, and, of course, fresh Dairy Queen fries. Maybe grab a Lipton Brisk or, even better, treat yourself to a blizzard. My recommendation this week has been the Chocolate Peanut drumstick Dairy Queen Blizzard at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. And if grocery shopping is on your list this weekend, we absolutely insist if you have a Friesen Brothers anywhere near you and you've never gone, make it this weekend. Friesen Brothers knows that really great conversations happen over really great food. And they've been making sure that Albertans have had that great food they expect. Produce, protein, baking. I mean, they know sourdough like nobody else does. For the last 65 years or so, still family-owned. Friesen Brothers is online at Friesen.com. You can learn more about their signature barbecue sauce if you're going to be firing up the grill this week. And don't forget, two weeks from now, the first of the month, it's 15% off for every grocery purchase over $75. That's at Friesen Brothers. You know, there's a fabulous Friesen Brothers in Hinton, Alberta. Fort Sask, too. Yeah, but I'm teeing up our next guest. You told me that. Yeah, yeah. Fort Sask, South Edmonton. I'm going to do the whole, I'm going to tour. You know who's choked about this? You know who's choked about all this talk? Is Real Talkers down in Calgary. Because they don't yet have a Friesen Brothers in, in Calgary City proper. And I don't blame the Calgarians that tune into Real Talk. We love you guys. Uh, They're sitting here going, like, how great can a grocery store be? Well, pretty great. 
yeah, pretty but, great. But we have the stampede. They do have the stampede. <laughs> Final Stampede weekend coming up this weekend. The Dash oh. for Cash, the Rangeland Derby, Sunday night. Big deal. <laughs> oh, really? You're not a big Stampede guy? Okay, got it. Johnny's cracking Red Bulls. The last half hour of the show is going to be a good one. <laughs> we'll get to Dr. Bradley Martin in just a second. You want to tee up that clip for me? Talking to Danielle Smith yesterday, uh, this is an interesting one. This was one of those moments in the interview where as a person asking the questions, you go, oh boy. Some folks, legal experts, have suggested that this comment could lead to a lawsuit, not aimed at me, aimed at the guest. We'll see. This is Danielle Smith talking about healthcare, specifically the former CEO of Alberta Health Services. We have to uh, challenge Alberta Health Services. They are, are either incompetent or that, or they went out of their way to sabotage the UCP government. I watched the fir- very first press conference that the premier gave back in, in March or, or April, where he gave direct instruction to Alberta Health Services to increase the number of ICU beds by 1,089. And then I think everybody was going along thinking they were working on finding that surge capacity. Then when the Delta variant came along last fall, we found out that not only had they not increased ICU beds, they had decreased them. And I've spent a lot of time talking to frontline nurses and doctors, especially in rural areas. And they told me that their um, facilities were empty. So Alberta Health Services, I think, let us all down by failing to find that surge capacity. We gave them lots of money, lots of time. And I think that that's where we should be focusing our effort. You don't really think that Alberta Health Services was trying to sabotage the government, do you? I don't know how to interpret it any other way. All I do know is that Dr. Bernard Yu was let go a month, a year before her uh, her contract extension was up. So somebody's come to the same conclusion I has that she just wasn't up for the job. Yeah, someone trying to save his own political skin, probably. Don't you think? I mean, that's what prompted this entire leadership no. race. I, I look at the facts and the facts are they uh, were given a direct instruction to increase surge, surge capacity and they failed. They reduced uh, surge capacity or they reduced ICU capacity. And that's unacceptable. Dr. Bradley Martin, a born and raised Albertan, uh, completed his medical training at the University of Alberta. He's been practicing in Hinton ever since then. He works at the clinic. He works in the hospital. Uh, and he also attends the Mountain Cree camp to deliver care a few times a year. He's a proud husband, a proud Father, he says, uh, to uh, three girls and also two cats. And he's a very good friend of this show. Doc, welcome back. It's nice to see your face. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Is my, is my sound okay? Yeah, your sound's great. Uh, you were Perfect. watching the interview yesterday. Uh, one of, you and I, on purpose, didn't, didn't want to talk too much ahead of time about what we're going to get right. to. We want to treat this like we're out for coffees or out for beers. Uh, so your thoughts on the interview yesterday? Yeah. Um, first off, I just want to say I realize I'm in Supriya's usual spot, so pressure's on yeah that's right <laughs> but, um yeah that that point uh so thanks for reading my mind that point particularly was uh of interest um and i want to start off by saying i mean i don't want to just lash out at danielle smith uh without her being here to defend that but there's some points that just aren't based in reality and that was one of them um yeah it's gonna sound uh like a trash talk already but um yeah. So Alberta Health Services, if Jason Kenney ever told us, you know, get 1,089 beds, well, that's pie in the sky. I mean, how is that possible? A bed isn't just a, you know, a bed. It's, it's people, it's staffing, it's resources. A, rural Alberta has zero capacity for ICU beds. So 100% never can hap- happen. We don't have respiratory therapists that staff hospitals 24-7. We don't have ICU critical care docs. We don't have any of that. Um so it doesn't matter if our facilities are empty, which they weren't. I mean, we have slow days like anybody else, but we're rural Alberta. It's not going to be packed all the time, but we're pretty busy. I mean, my, my hospital right now is on outbreak with COVID. We can't admit more patients. We, we're not allowed to. They have to 
they can come to our merge, but we can't keep them in our hospital. Doctor, currently it's on outbreak? Currently, yeah, wow. as of a day or two ago, like we're just fresh back into it. And this is probably the third time it's happened. So we have a time where it's it can be several days where we can't admit patients. But I mean, for for anybody, a politician to just say increase capacity, triple, quadruple, whatever capacity. And then we don't do it and it's all of a sudden we failed. Well, no, the resources just aren't there. We do not have the docs. I mean, I don't even have to mention the fact with Chandro and now with Minister Copping and the docs leaving the province. I mean, we've got evidence that that's the case. Um, even if that weren't happening, we wouldn't have had the resources to with that kind of ask. And ICU beds didn't increase. They decreased. The, the only concern with it is um, the increase in ICU beds. They had a lot fewer people covering each one. Most ICU patients get one-to-one nursing care. I don't know if that was the case throughout the whole pandemic. It couldn't have been, I, but I don't work in the big center, so I, I can't comment on that directly, but they were flying throughout all this. Uh, the uh, th- There's this sort of idea that, that you can just shuffle things around, and I just want to return to the, to the concept of, or not the concept, but like to the mandate to add ICU beds. So can, can you give us like us civilians that really have no idea the different, like the difference between ER an ICU or what an ICU bed represents, or can, can you actually kind of dumb it down uh, for those of us that wouldn't have sort of an intricate working knowledge of what would be involved there, just so we, we understand the magnitude of if you're, if you're going to add eight or 80 or 800 ICU beds, like what would just to it to a civilian, what would you have to do? Yeah, that's yeah. I can break that down a little bit. I, you know, if you get an ICU doc on here, they can do it better or an ICU nurse sure. even better. They could get a better sense, but basically you have a bed which is literally a bed in a hospital. It's hooked up uh, you know, to oxygen, to different things on the wall. But to be an ICU bed, uh, you have to have the access to have uh, sometimes special amounts of oxygen, uh, sometimes dialysis right there in that bed. That's you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars per, for those machines. Um, just different equipment that doesn't exist, different drugs that don't always exist in, in rural Alberta or emergency centers, but probably there are some antibiotics I know that are only in ICUs. Um, because they're so rare and they're so needed sometimes. Um, so lots of equipment that just doesn't exist. Like, you know, you look into an IC room in the city, 90% of what's in it probably doesn't exist in rural Alberta or even other parts of that hospital. Um, but the biggest thing is, is the care. You know, the, 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 the physicians that train for the ICU are usually internal medicine docs or anesthesiologists, docs with five years residency on top of a med school with special fellowships, likely in critical care. So very highly trained. Same with the nurses. Uh, ICU nurses, they deliver one-to-one care. They have, uh, uh, they have specific knowledge uh, and specific ability to set up all that equipment. Um, so, you know, for costs, I would say you're probably looking at hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars per bed, per bed to even yeah. get that per bed, um, at the very least. And, um, you know, tens of years of training per bed. I mean, the ICU docs cover, you know, a big area of the ICU, but the ICU nurses, that's usually one-to-one. So how does it's it usually just, work, doc? Like if somebody in Hinton is requiring ICU care, what's the, is that, is that airlift? Is that how that is handled? Yeah, typically, um, sometimes depending on their nature, uh, we can ground ambulance them, but if they're, if they're needed to get there quickly, it's usually airlift to Grand Prairie or Edmonton. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. And so with regards, to, I, I mean, I am putting you on the spot here. I'm sort of interviewing no, you. No I'm interviewing you almost like I would interview the, 
the, the AHS CEO because I'm asking you numbers and things like. If you don't know, just go. Oh man, I don't know. But but so you so you mentioned Grand Prairie for example. That's that's a city of like almost I'm pretty sure almost 100. I think it's like 80 thousand people or something, isn't it? Grand Prairie is a, a decent sized center. Yeah, it's, something like that. It's yeah. like approximately ish the size yeah. of, of Red Deer. So you've got ICUs in what Grand Prairie. Red Deer, I would imagine, like, does Lethbridge probably have ICU beds? Calgary and Edmonton obviously do. Is that kind of ish? Yeah, I think Lethbridge and Medicine Hat both do as well. Okay. Um, the only thing I can state, and I might be way off base stating this, is the acuity of those ICU beds aren't necessarily what you're going to get in Edmonton or, or Calgary. Um, but they do have high acuity there. They can, because I've sent COVID positive needing respiratory care to ground prior before. So, but they don't have as many high acuity ICU beds. That's really going to be in your, your big centers. Okay. Anything else from the interview yesterday that you wanted to touch on? Lots, <laughs> lots and lots. I got well, a let's bit of a go, list. man. What are you waiting but, for? No. Well, what I'll do is I'll touch on specifically the things that are kind of in my lane. Cause I got, I had some things to say about a lot of it. You but, know, no, no, no. Um, hang on a second. You yeah. don't have to touch on things that stay in your lane. There's no such thing. No. Like what, 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 what inspired you the most? What pissed you off the most? What did you want to talk about the most? It doesn't have to just be about medicine. Okay. Well, I was listening to the interview and uh, taking notes. So I'll just go chronologically. <laughs> um, one of the points was, and this is actually, it's a point for any, for a lot of people, both on the sides of wanting to be vaccinated, wanting to wear masks and the people that were opposed to that, the whole protect the vulnerable. And, 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 and uh, Ms. Smith mentioned that yesterday about, okay, you know, can't, can't blame the government for the first few months of the pandemic efforts. But then after that, hey, we could, should just work on protecting the vulnerable, you know, 70 plus. I can't remember how she worded it, but basically saying let's lock down or let's help the, um, you know, the people in the care homes. But that's not what our vulnerable is. Our vulnerable is, you know, we have people with physical disabilities that are young, you know, children that are immunocompromised. We have elderly that are immunocompromised. Our vulnerable don't exist in just care homes. They don't exist in bubbles. They exist everywhere. You, can, you can't go down a street in Alberta without somebody that would be considered vulnerable. So if you want to protect the vulnerable, you have to protect everybody because the vulnerable are everywhere. I just think that point is really, it's, it's an easy point to say, we just have to do that. Well, that is a huge task. So that's, that's one point. Um, uh, yeah, talking about the ICU beds, that's, you know, you can't just snap your fingers and make that happen. That's, that's pretty tough. That's pretty tough. Uh, the rural doctors that she supposedly spoke to, I, I, you know, there are some docs that are on side with some of the, the anti-vaccine mandates and, and things like that, but they're in the minority. I can tell you that. And well, you can always out. find, you can always find someone. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, I, I, I can find I'll find you a pastor that doesn't believe God exists. I guarantee him. I could do it by the end of next week and bring him on That's the show. Uh, you know, um, I mean, they might be right, but I digress. But but the point. <laughs> whoa. But the point is, the point is, you can always find totally. someone to say Absolutely. something easily. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um yeah. And, uh, and that's exactly it. So I don't know who she's been speaking to and I, I don't know if I represent rural docs, but here I am a guy with a beard and a plaid shirt. It's gotta be pretty rural. So I don't know. <laughs> can you swing an ax Brad? I can. Can you change a tire? <laughs> no, I can. <laughs> what else got um, What else got under your skin? Um, so the, the comparison and, you know, she had, a, you, you gave her a couple of times to get out of this one or to, to, to get some facts back into it, but the influenza versus COVID uh, yeah. it's not a comparison. It isn't. I mean, we influenza has hit us, but when you go look back to all the data for influenza in the past decade, the deaths for influenza are a fraction of what COVID has been in a year. 
and we've had almost three years of it now. So that's just, there is no comparison. And then she started listing off random viruses. She's just looking at a sheet that has names of viruses, you know, cause some of those viruses are common cold viruses, but they've never been problems like that. <laughs> um, but so it's more just, than just deaths, isn't it? Like if you're, if you're going to oh, compare yeah. influenza, like let's call it the flu, right? If you're going to compare influenza to COVID or the flu to COVID, it's more than just deaths. Like, like there, there's different levels of, of like how contagious it is, how it spreads, how it mutates, uh, how it impacts. Yeah. Right. I mean, like there's a whole bunch of considerations to make. Oh, totally. Yeah. Influenza for the for the mutating part, as far as I know, influenza actually mutates a bit more than COVID, mm-hmm. but it hasn't been as nasty as far as uh, detriment side effects. And, you know, I've seen you know, I've seen some people, you know, bad influenza um, that have had outcomes that last a bit longer, but I've never seen anything like what COVID can do okay. a year out. I've had people that still aren't back to snuff and, and that's just it. Death's a number, whereas actual disability and whatnot, that's hard to quantify. And that's, that's a very real thing. Um, yeah. Um, the other point, uh, EMS, uh, talking about paramedics taking on four people. Like, again, it's, it's bodies. We don't have enough bodies in EMS and, that's just, it's again, pie in the sky. It's just never going to happen. We could triple our AMS numbers and we're never going to get to that level. It's just demand on hospitals. We have a lot. Um, I do agree with the point that we need more of these workers, but we need to go about it in a way to actually recruit and retain these people. EMS, they just don't get paid nearly enough to do the job that they do. I wouldn't do their job for twice what I make. So, hey, this is this is that. a this is a rude question, but do you happen to know approximately what a what a paramedic might make, like a starting wage, and like ten years uh, in? Ryan, I looked at that number a couple of days ago, and it's 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 I, I can't remember. I'd be guessing if I said that now. Yeah, like would you like yeah. ballpark? Like would a paramedic start making like? 55 or 68 or 75 or, or like, I think it would depend on, so their ALS, the paramedic paramedics with more training. Um, I think they'd start more than that would be my guess. ALS is advanced life support, right? Yeah. The advanced life support. So, so they don't have as many of those ratio wise in the big cities because BLS can quickly get people to the hospitals. Whereas ALS, you know, they have more life support capabilities. Okay. So they'd start higher than that would be my suspicion, but I I don't, I don't have a good. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious if you knew. But one thing I would know is, um, you know, we see even in rural Hinton, like we see, you know, May long weekend, we have dunes out here, people dying on quads. Like we see a lot of stuff that come into emerge. It's pretty bad, but we don't see anything what the EMS do because they'll see things out there. If, if people are dead on arrival, they don't even come to my hospital. So I, I just, I, I, you couldn't pay me enough to do that job to begin mm. with. So I think they need to change the way they're managing that. Um, and then, yeah, they're talking, uh, the other talking point with the EMS that was brought up yesterday was talking about their overhead doctor that they can call. And, you know, with that doctor, you know, agrees with certain things can start to manage. Well, most docs don't like to manage people for a long time when they can actually lay eyes on the patient. So I, I, I don't know how feasible that is. And that doc's got to be on call for a lot of Alberta. It's, it's, it's not too many docs that are, that are working, uh, coordinating stars. They can't just be on the line, um, with you know two patients in a hospital they have to cover as far as i know most of the province at times so there's not too many of them that work at any one time um uh uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna go to education for a second if that's all right man you're ready i I go (laughs) (laughs) Um, you promised um, us a trash talk like i just feel uh, like you're (laughs) you're you're being so professional and reasonable and i'm i I don't want to say i'm disappointed but okay no i'll I'll bring it a little bit more but (laughs) You know, glamorizing the fucking 1900s. I mean, what educational standards would we have if we actually had one teacher to teach six grades at once with 10 kids in a classroom? It's just fucking ridiculous. Like, I don't understand how she said that is a positive to say that's what we need to get back to. 
that's just insane. There's nothing, you know, I don't like to be rhetorical. I don't like to say things about people that are conservative just because I'm not. I don't like that. But that, I mean, you can't, can't have bullshit arguments. You have to have some evidence. And I know you've spoken to that before, Ryan. Evidence-based policy is the way to go on anything. But I mean, that's just wackadoodle. I, I just, yeah, <laughs> that's not. Uh, the Janssen vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, she's mentioned that as well. And uh, it doesn't work as well. It, it just doesn't. The other thing too, what the funny thing is, is a lot of people that were kind of anti-vaccine wanted that vaccine because they were scared of the side effects of the Moderna, the Pfizer, the AstraZeneca. But the research showed that not only did the Johnson & Johnson one not work as well, it actually had more of those side effects. Ah. <laughs> so it's kind of ridiculous. For people um, that don't are familiar, the context yeah. that that vaccine came up in was, was yeah. the $100,000 that was raised crowdfunding and wondering yeah. where that money went. If people missed that, it's worth a listen. Yeah. And, 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 and the funny thing with that one too, is that that brought her to talk about the college of physicians and surgeons of Alberta, the CPSA and doctors being worried about being blacklisted and losing their licenses. Well, I can tell you something we, and she said about freedom to treat and that we have that. I have, I have crazy freedom to treat. I can treat a lot. What's freedom to treat? What does that mean? Well, she mentioned it yesterday saying, I think, and I, and this is me guessing, but I think it was a read between the lines of, Doc should be able to use ivermectin, ivermectin, things like that. Mm. I think that's what she's referring to. But freedom to treat, I mean, that's my job. I have to look at a patient. I have guidelines for certain treatments, but I, you know, I go against guidelines a lot when I've got the patient in front of me that has a different spin on things. I can treat however I like. Um, but what, what would happen gonna... if you administered ivermectin? This is a horse medication for people. Yeah, this well, is, this so is what President thing. Trump at the time yeah. was suggesting so, should be. So that's that's just it. It's, you know, I wouldn't want to treat with that. There's no evidence that it works. There's zero. It's 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 side effect. Yeah, I uh, just I would I wouldn't go near it. Um, there's evidence that it does harm in humans uh, more so than anything. Um, it just, it's just not, a, it, it won't work for COVID anyway. Um, so yes, we do have certain limits that if we use certain things that are proven to be ineffective for certain things, we can definitely get our hands slapped for that. But so I don't know if that's what she was getting at or not. Can you, how does, it's, how it's does it work as a, physicians Brad, have. how does it work as a physician? Like if you believed in, um, I'm going to say a few words that might bring people out and I don't, but, but I want to get specific and cut to the chase. Like, and I'm, this mm. is not disparaging anybody. I know a lot of people believe this stuff works for sure. But like if you integrated like a more holistic approach, so say for example, someone comes to you with a health issue and you say, I could prescribe you this. I think this is going to work. Here's the treatment we're going to pursue. But I also think, you know, we're, we're going to do a little like craniosacral work or we're going to do some like energy work or some Reiki or, or whatever, like you, you, you sort of integrate that other stuff in, into your practice. Um, do doctors have the freedom to do that sort of a thing? Do you risk yourself being hauled in front of the college? Like how, how, how much wiggle room do doctors have with regards to the conviction of how you practice and, and the prescriptions, so to speak, or the advice that you give? So specifically that last point, the advice we give and whatnot, we have almost unlimited freedom. There isn't really anything as long as we're not being unprofessional about it. So, okay. you know, being untoward attitude wise, uh, disrespecting people for, for various reasons. Right. But what we are allowed to tell patients, there's nobody that can stop us from saying whatever we like. So we have, you know, almost, almost to a fault. I mean, if anything, there, there would be more control on how doctors can practice truth be told. Um, but saying things like Reiki and things like that, I don't, I don't think there's anything stopping us from doing that kind of care. 
the biggest thing would be we wouldn't be allowed to charge for that kind of care. I see. And that's, okay. and that's what I have, you know, issue with naturopathic doctors as well. They make money on, on uh, whatever they recommend, or they sell you a bottle of magnesium that costs $60. That's the same as the Jameson brand uh, vitamins on the shelf. Um, and, you know, people actually think that Canadian physicians make money on prescriptions. I don't, I don't make a cent. If I, I could prescribe you 300 medications at once, I wouldn't make a penny. Right. The only thing I get paid for is my time with the patient. But yeah, we have a lot of freedom to do that, but we also have to make sure that we're not doing harm with that too. So unproven methods, things like that. Um, you know, a lot of it thankfully doesn't really harm somebody. Um, but it doesn't necessarily help, but it, it's, it's when we start to doing unproven methods that actually have negative health implications for our patients. That's when we would get in trouble. And I, and I would definitely consider ivermectin to be in that camp for okay. sure. I want to make sure we don't leave something on your list that you're keeping uh, without <laughs> it. What, what's one other big one that's jumping off that list. You want to make sure we talk about. Um, I th- I'm just looking at my list right here. Uh, I, I wanted to say, um, uh, the health spending account thing I thought was interesting. I, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily against that one. I think, I think it's a great idea, be, actually. I think, it, I think it could be, but I think, I think the implementation of it's going to be important. Uh, so I think like a family, each person having some money for the things that aren't covered by healthcare. I, I, you know, I think that's not a bad idea. My solution would be let's try to work to get those things covered by healthcare chiropractor. Um, well, some of the chiropractors are less evidence-based than others, but things like massage, physiotherapy, dental care. I mean, I'm all for that being covered under the healthcare plan. Um, in lieu of that happening though, some money towards that I think is okay. But um, I, I just like with that kind of money spent, we, we, you know, like our regular healthcare system, the emergency being in hospital beds, you know, we have however many million of people, 4 million people in Alberta, not all 4 million people seek healthcare at all times. Most of the healthcare is utilized by a minority of people, the sickest of us. Yeah. Um, so a blank spread across everybody getting that money might not be money, might not be money best spent. I'm not saying that it's not a good idea. I think it could, it could have its merit, but that kind of money could also be putting into infrastructure to actually help those programs be accessible to those who need it. Uh, and the other thing too, is $300 per person. If you actually need those services, it won't actually go that far. I mean, you get a counseling session, times two, you probably owe that money already. If, if you have um, two counseling yeah. sessions, you probably owe on top of the 300 bucks. Probably. So I, I think, I, I certainly think it's, it's, it's an idea worth, worth exploring because exploring, helping people access those kinds of services that normally cost money, I think is a good idea. Uh, I think the implementation of it is probably, is, is probably what would fall on. The other thing too, uh, and this is me being a lefty, so I'm just going to put my bias out there right now is I, I, I would suspect that a government that would have that kind of spending would put that on the, you know, put that on as a line item that's spent on healthcare that necessarily isn't. It's just given to people to potentially spend on healthcare. And I would hate to have that as a line item and say, oh, we put this towards healthcare. It's like, well, did it actually go there? Yeah. It's like, do I get 300 bucks if I provide receipts for 300 bucks worth of health services? <clears throat> or do I just get 300 bucks to go buy a 27 year aged single malt? Like, I, that's what I need to know, right? Exactly. Exactly. So if that's a line item that's just considered spent and it actually doesn't go towards it, then it's going to, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to look good politically. Oh yeah, we spent all this money, but did it actually do anything? And, and that kind of spending too, it's hard. I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not an expert in politics or spending by any means, but I feel like that would be hard to actually be able to find an impact on. And I think government policy, good government policy is something that you can actually, um, track and, and get some evidence on how yeah. well is that working and I, I and i think that one would be hard to to follow it depends 
It depends yeah. who your target audience is. Like mm -hmm. if you've mastered your messaging, all you need is a few people up on stage and you say Darla got her $300 from our government and used it to, you know, go toward her daughter's orthodontics. And everyone's like, wow, that's amazing. And Darla's like, she could, she doesn't, you know, and then, and then like John, Jonathan used his $300 to get his sciatica treated. And then Jonathan comes up and says like, without that $300, I would have been whatever. And then they go, look at that, you know, and then, and then. The, the politicians that would actually have the data and crunch the numbers to say like 17% of Albertans use their $300 to whatever. Nobody gives a fuck about that. No, honestly, it's, it's what matters. The numbers matter, but they just don't matter to people that vote. And uh, that's kind of one of the ills about politics in my mind is that the, the, the messaging is going to meet the audience uh, and, and in a way that I think is leading to s some of the woes that you hear people address in the emails to the show and the complaints that people have about the state of politics and discourse and the polarization and the camps right now. And a big part of that is how people get their message across and what seems to land with the general public. So I don't know. I think you could spin that $1.4 expenditure pretty well uh, if you've mastered your messaging. But but I digress. It hasn't happened yet. She's not the premier yet. She hasn't given away the $300 per person yet. So all of this is just a hypothetical right now with you and me. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and fair enough. And, and like I said, that point is probably as you, I think you might've said that too, is the least controversial point <laughs> that she, that she brought up. And, and I agree because it could go, it could go a lot, a lot of different ways. Um, but I think, I think the biggest messaging that I would, I would want uh, to, to, to give real talkers is, I mean, the evidence-based things have to be important when it comes to healthcare and uh, you've had different candidates on, uh, oh, and that's what I wanted to mention, by the way, Ryan, you got it from both sides yesterday, having her on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, didn't think, I didn't think that was doesn't fair. matter. No, it <laughs> yeah, doesn't yeah. matter, man. It's it's like uh, I don't want to I don't want to get too much into this, but people that are like, oh, you're platforming or whatever. It's like, dude, she's she's she could be the premier. Yeah, like if, no, you're, if you're of the like if people that use sort of the, the idea of like platforming as I just sort of uh huh. I, I don't think maybe these people are just learning about talk shows maybe they're just sort of like don't quite understand how it all works but um i don't lose sleep over that stuff doc the, you, the conversations are important um her comments on this show yesterday resonated with hundreds of thousands of people you should see our download numbers on the podcast plus it's caught the attention of politicians and pundits i saw david Hager wrote about it this morning i know that the big papers and the mainstream media outlets were quoting our interviews yesterday so um you know people that tell us it's not worthwhile or, or it was irresponsible um you know quite frankly uh, I'm actually just going to keep it classy, Doc. Um, Fair enough. But let me just say I was able to sleep soundly last night. That's good. That's yeah. good. Hey. Well, and, it, and my thought about that, too, is you don't give platform to people that already have a platform. That voice is heard in anything. Yeah, like... Like, we need to hear more from our camp, our candidates, because we need to know what they're all about. And a lot of time we're voting for people we actually haven't heard talk too much, so... Yeah. <laughs> all good and uh and 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 as as we continue to reiterate to people this show is just one big like yeah we stop on friday afternoons and we pick it up again on monday and we do it for about 75 minutes every day sometimes 90 and and uh you know we go on and on but all it is man is just one continuing conversation right it's not like we don't we don't sort of close the book on an issue if we've talked about it once um, and you right now are proof of that. And we appreciate that. We appreciate you returning to the show. You're certainly an audience favorite. There's no doubt about that.
about that. Um, I will say, can we take the wide shot of Dr. Martin? I noticed that Lauren, he's a retired fire chief uh, in the live chat. He says it's, there's something strange about your setup in the back. He says he's not not used to seeing exercise equipment without clothing draped all over it. Um, so, so, so Lauren, for the first time, is, is see, seeing what exercise equipment looks like. Yeah. Nice job. Are you at the hospital today again? Uh, I will be at the hospital later. I'm at the clinic today. Okay, brother. Thanks for doing this and have a great weekend. Stay safe out there. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ryan. Good to see you. Yeah. From the, the from the gateway to the Rockies, stunning Hinton, Alberta. That's Dr. Bradley Martin. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at DocMartin1987. And uh, <laughs> I lit a, is he still there? Doc, I yeah. did. I did want to say one final thing. Last time you were on the show, I don't remember my exact words, but I but I accused your Twitter account of being a little bit boring. It uh, still is. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I just wanted to check in to see if you had resolved to make it a little more inflammatory or not. But but you do identify well, yourself as a healthcare professional on. There, I so can't I be too me. inflammatory. I've got another one that is, and it's yeah. not the one that you think it is. But <laughs> yeah, you won't tell us about your burner. Hey, you don't tell people. What's the point of a burner account if you know people don't know what my burner account <laughs> is, it. right? Huh? Huh? No, I don't have one. Well, there you go. I don't have one, <laughs> but I should. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Yeah, you got it. Doc Martin 1987 is where you can follow him on Twitter. We're going to talk to three Alberta mayors uh, coming up in 90 seconds. Before we do, I want to remind you that if you're going to be looking, you and your family, for a new vehicle uh, this weekend, there could be a number of different reasons. Perhaps you got rear-ended like we did yesterday. Bum, 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 bum. Okay, so I come into work today and I saw like a printout and I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah, rear-ended yesterday. Blew up the whole back of it. Anyway, I digress. Uh, Or maybe you're looking to upsize something to pull a trailer. Maybe you're looking to downsize so your gas bill at the pump isn't $230 every 10 days or so. Whatever your situation, the teams at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge have a solution for you. They've been finding the perfect fit for their return customers for years. And of course, the cool part about this is it's the same ownership group so they can share inventories. You can explore all their vehicles from the Ram, Jeep, Dodge and Chrysler lineup today online at stalbertdodge.com, sherwooddodge.com, or you can just go see them in person. Let them know that Real Talk sent you. And don't forget, a big part of doing business with them is their sales and service side. You can trust this team. That goes a long way when it comes to vehicle sales. That's why we're proud to partner with them. Same deal with Park Power. I talk to you all the time about how this is a family owned business. We love that. How many utility companies are family owned? One? They're in the business of electricity, natural gas, and internet, but they're also in the business of giving back to community. You know, 10% of their profits on electricity, they plug those back into nonprofits where they live and work. If you go to parkpower.ca, when you sign up there, part of the process of signing up is you get to choose where your contribution is going to which charity. What? How cool is that? Make sure you use the promo code 2022-REALTALK when you take your business to Park Power. If you do that, they'll knock $70 off your very first bill. And our friends at Kuvi Energy want to remind you that they are always looking for certified installers as well as those that want to get there. That means that you may not have your ticket as an electrician yet. Maybe you're an apprentice or maybe you're just thinking about switching jobs. They want to meet you where you're at. As long as you're a hard worker, as long as you're committed to excellence, they can work with that. Kubi Energy operates across Western Canada based out of Kamloops and Edmonton. You can learn about career opportunities, plus get a free quote for solar. There's a $40,000 interest-free loan available right now from the feds, by the way, everybody. forty grand interest free All of the details at kubienergy.ca.
Well, I love these roundtables. We bring them to you every month or so, every couple of months. We want to check in to communities around our neck of the woods, but but not necessarily always the two biggest ones because there's a lot happening. And there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of folks on the prairies, in particular Alberta, living in Alberta municipalities that deserve to have their communities' issues discussed and addressed on a show like this. And that's why we're excited to present this traditional Friday Real Talk Roundtable celebrating and focusing on Alberta municipalities of small and medium sizes. Her Worship Kathy Heron is the president of Alberta Municipalities. You know, she's the mayor of the city of St. Albert. She served on that council since 2009, and she was elected president of Alberta Municipalities back in November of 2021. She prides herself on a collaborative approach to leading and governing. That's her thing. Tyler Gandum is vice president for cities under half a million. Uh, he's the uh, Wetaskiwin city councilor since 2013, the mayor of the city of Wetaskiwin now, and of course, a funeral director by trade, also a captain with the local fire department. That's the thing in communities like this. You'll find people wearing a whole bunch of different hats and I suppose helmets to uh, Captain and Mayor Gandum prior to becoming Alberta Municipalities VP. He served as a director. So he's been involved in the community and in this group for a long time. And Angela Duncan joining us as the mayor of the village of Alberta Beach. Uh, it's located on the southeast shore of beautiful Lac St. Anne, about uh, maybe a half hour west of Edmonton. She's Alberta Municipalities Director for Villages West, and she was on this show, and she was briefly serving as Alberta Municipalities Interim President back in fall 2021. So we got three mayors hanging out with us for the next half hour, so looking forward to this conversation. It's great to see you all. A good morning to you, uh, President and Mayor Heron. We get the double barrel thumbs up from you, so why don't I start with you first? Uh, what, what's shaking in the city of St. Albert these days? I mean, I wanted to, I've got a whole list of things we want to talk about. We're going to focus on the so-called social issues today, but what's one of the things at the top of your list in St. Albert, just north of Edmonton? homelessness if you want to talk social issues that's where we're going to start but i mean there's lots going on i'm sitting outside and it's a gorgeous day right now so that's that's the number for you we love our trees here but we should get into the topics and yeah the first one i think we would like to talk about is is definitely homelessness and by the way ryan i was i was looking forward to this all morning i always love being on this. thank you for the for the time um i think the three of us were chosen to have a conversation with you today because like we talked about having some of the big city councillors join us because um, they have so many social issues, but we believe it's super important to talk about um, how the the system is broken <coughs> the fact that St. Albert, Portasquin, Alberta Beach, for example, um, end up sending their social issues into the big cities. <laughs> hey, I just, I just and, want to remind all yeah. the guests that all of your mics are hot right now, so we can hear everything. Just, just, just a reminder, all of the mics are hot right now. Sorry to interrupt you, Mayor Heron. <laughs> That's okay. That's Tyler clearing his throat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, you know, I think it was in the news, you know, not that long ago in May when uh, Minister Shandros came down on Edmonton and asked for a safety plan to deal with the crime in, in their downtown. And we were all together. We were doing some board meetings and uh, the two councillors from Calgary were like, well, why is, why are they not coming down on Calgary? We have just the same number of issues and problems. And Tyler can speak to the crime in Wetaskiwin and, and the homelessness in Wetaskiwin. So it's, this is not a big city problem. 
these are these are issues that are across Alberta and and the system definitely is broken. And Mayor Gandam, you know one of the things that I've always and I've said this to you before, one of the things I've always appreciated when you've been on this show and when you and I've spoken on a previous show as well is you've never bullshitted us about the state of affairs in Wetaskiwin. You've never, like a lot of people, a lot of politicians, and I understand why, uh, they're, they're doing double duty as sort of like the director of tourism as well, right? And so they're going to say like, like everything's fantastic in our city and there's no problem with the opioid crisis and there's really we're working to end homeless and it's not really a problem and the crime is under control. And you've gone on the record on this show saying you go crime in our community uh, per capita capita is the worst in the province. I mean, you, you've, you've not shied away from talking about controversial approaches that have been taken. I, I mean, people have tried to put up, I mean, you know what I'm talking about here. I think of like, you know, baby Jesus being born in the manger. That was kind of the idea of there was like these outdoor shelters for the homeless and people were saying, what is this like the Old Testament? You remember these conversations we've had, but you've tried a bunch of different things. The community's tried to find solutions, but you've never, not even once pretended like it's not a hell of a challenge. It's a huge challenge. And this goes back to, I've been in the community for 30 years. And I, to me, coming from Vancouver to Wetaskiwin and seeing public intoxication or groups gathered drinking middle of the afternoon um, was pretty common in a big city. And growing up being a kid in Wetaskiwin, it was common here as well. So I just thought that was something that happened everywhere. And it wasn't until I was older that I started to realize that, no, we do have bigger social issues in Wetaskiwin. Uh, and then it wasn't until I was elected to council and then my first term as mayor um, where I started actively trying to find the solutions to go along with it. And that's just been my push now for just about the last five years is changing what it looks like. Because for a the majority of those years of me being captain, Wetaskiwin has been Alberta's most dangerous city. And you can talk to the majority of the residents that live here and would, unless the statistics said that, would have no idea that we live in Alberta's most dangerous city or that we're top five in Canada. It, nobody here would ever suggest or feel that they weren't on safe here that often to have that kind of title. So while well, statistics are important, it's certainly mm -hmm. not what it paints the picture of what Wetaskiwin is because we've got amazing people here. We're top five in Alberta for donations per capita. And we live in one of the lowest socioeconomic communities in Alberta, but we can be top five in that. So you, the people here is what makes the community great and why I'm here and why I'm continuing to do the work that I'm doing. But we definitely have our issues, social and otherwise, and we need to find the solutions to it. And homelessness isn't a big city problem. We would rival any big city in North America per capita for mm. the number of homeless population that we have here in our city of 13, just under 13,000 people. Okay. Well, I want to get into that and, and, and maybe some, some of the root causes and because I think, and, and someone might say, well, isn't it obvious, but I don't think it is obvious. I don't think that we have these conversations, uh, informed conversations about what eradicating or eliminating homelessness, let alone, I mean, maybe let's just start with addressing it, what that actually looks like effectively. I will say I'm grateful that we're having this conversation, Mayor Duncan, because people might take a look at your community 
I mean, it's got beach in the name for Pete's sake. People are going to think it's like a haven, like whatever. You know, the worst thing that happens at Alberta Beach is somebody leaves their sandwich wrapper in the sand and we got to go pick it up and then we get back to perfection. Right. But I suspect you might tell me uh, that that's not exactly the case. Uh, does, does your village encounter some of the same challenges just on a smaller scale that some of the big metropolitan areas do? We absolutely do. Our challenges are no different than we see in the larger centres. The key difference is that we don't have a lot of attention paid to us, so we don't talk about it very much. And we don't have the resources or the capacity to handle issues in our own communities. So what happens is that when we have a problem with homelessness or affordable housing or other social issues, we usually rely on the, the large centers to take care of them for us. So our problems really just get shipped into Edmonton, Calgary, and our surrounding communities because we just don't have access to supports to deal with them at home. And, and that doesn't help the problem because when we take our residents and people that are struggling in our own communities and we ship them off, we're taking them away from the support networks and the sense of community that they do have access to. We're taking them away from family and friends and moving them into larger centers so that they have access to affordable housing or access to shelters or social supports, mental health supports, whatever it is that they need. And often we even see that we rely on the RCMP or ambulance to to bring people into larger centers because we also lack access to public transportation. So where do we start? We're going to have a conversation. I know that, I mean, obviously a group like Alberta municipalities is important because it gets people talking and it kind of gets people on the same page. It reiterates the idea that that everyone's working toward the same goal. Um, Kathy, you steer it as president. So, so when you start talking about effectively addressing homelessness, I know that we're going to talk about necessary big expenditures, right? We're going to need to talk about cooperation from different levels of government. It requires big cash infusions, but, but let's get specific. What works and what are you really hoping to see? What are you lobbying for? What does Alberta municipalities want to see? Well, it's always, it's always that collaborative approach with, um, with the provincial government for the most part, a lot of these issues on host on housing and some of the core um, things that, that lead to homelessness are mental health and addictions, and it, and those are definitely a provincial jurisdiction. And we need to we need to work with the province. And and sometimes we don't we don't feel we get the support. There is no Ministry of Housing. That that's one that's one of the problems right there. That I don't have a specific minister I can go to. I can go to Minister of Infrastructure and I can get capital funding. But then I need to, what ministry do I go to operate a, a shelter or transitional home type? So we don't have provincial help to just wrap around. We need wraparound services. And that's talked about a lot because you don't just put a roof over someone's head. You need to give them the you know, whatever supports they need to get off whatever they're on. We need to give them supports and mental health. And that's, of course, the issue that's escalated homelessness in Alberta in the last two years is mental health for sure. And so the municipalities even though it's not our job, we're, we, we're, and I, I will not use the, the D word, the downloading word, because we're here to be partners. Like St. Albert right now is giving up a $3 million piece of land to build affordable housing in our downtown. We will, we, we gladly do that. These are our residents. We care for them and we want our communities to thrive and thriving communities leads to good economic prosperity. So it's really honestly about the solutions are there. Everyone understands them. We just need to um, work together to, to fund those solutions. Let me ask the three of you about this. And, and Mayor Duncan, this this one kind of lands in your lap because we're talking about your community. And I, I want to credit Real Talker Emma, 
who's put this story on my radar. She's reminding me this this horrific story of these two murders in uh, Edmonton's Chinatown district. You remember this? This guy, Justin Bone, who's now facing charges uh, after being dropped off in the city unsupervised by RCMP. It's it's actually a, 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 a unbelievable story. Uh, I'm citing the reporting uh, by Wallace Snowden, who does a great job with CBC News. Uh, but the, the the controversy here is that essentially this person was picked up by RCMP in Alberta Beach, right in your community, where he he'd been uh, staying with a family friend, and uh, RCMP uh, and and allegedly Edmonton police essentially ignored warnings about the danger that this man could pose to public safety. Um, a man commenting on this close to the accused said, "This is like a starlight ride in reverse." I think everybody's familiar with the the horrific. Can I call it a tradition of these starlight tours? Uh, we hear about them in Alberta. Saskatchewan in particular seems to have a disproportionate number of them where police will pick up people, typically indigenous people, drive them way outside the city and drop them off in the middle of the night. Oftentimes without a winter coat, it's minus 30. I mean, it's horrific, right? This described as a starlight ride in reverse. This person says you drop them off in the middle of the city. You made sure that this guy was a city of Edmonton problem. Now, I obviously understand the sense that goes into bringing somebody to a major urban center where there are resources like housing, detox, supervised consumption, counseling, like all of the things. I get it. Uh, But at the same time, this was an example of that sort of practice really blowing up in your face. So as we try to come up with intuitive, effective, evidence-based solutions that work, how do we reconcile all of this? How do we equip the small communities to have the resources they need? And how do we ensure that the big urban centers are prepared to handle the influx? Like Mayor Gandam, for example, Wetaskiwin probably experiences this to a smaller degree, right? There's there's smaller communities around you, and then Wetaskiwin becomes the hub as well. We see it happening all across the province. So, so Mayor Duncan, why don't I go to you first? How do we figure out the best way to do this? Uh, I had a feeling this was going to come up today, Ryan. Um, <laughs> the The situation with with uh, Justin Bone, who was sent into Edmonton, was unfortunate. And there's a lot of different things that I think went into it. And I certainly can't comment on why the RCMP made the decisions that they did and whether or not they were the appropriate decisions. I just don't have that information. But I think what this situation really highlights is the complete lack of access to supports and services that we have in rural Alberta. Had there been um, access to shelters and housing that this man could have gone to, we might not have to have sent him into Edmonton the way that that happened. And like I said, whether or not that was the right call, I'm just not able to comment. I think a lot of it comes to funding of social supports in rural Alberta. We don't have a lot of funding. Um, Most of our funding does come through the FCSS program, the Family and Community Support Services. And I'll, I'll tell you for a community of my size, I partner with three other summer villages And between the four of us, we have about $40,000 that we have for preventative programming. So even if we wanted to to have the supports in our community, and and often we do, we just don't have the money to do it. Yeah. Mayor Gandam and I write about that. I don't want to make assumptions, but does Wetaskiwin see a similar practice to it, maybe just to a bit of a smaller degree? I don't know that people are being dropped off in the city from outside communities, but we become the hub. We've got... We've got the amenities in Wetaskiwin that Muscochise might not. So Tim Hortons, McDonald's, Walmart, liquor stores, 
Um, and that just, even when Samson set up a mats program in the wintertime, the, the availability for a sh an emergency shelter was there in Muscochise, but it wasn't being used because it, they don't have the amenities that Wetaskiwin has. So it then becomes the hub for people experiencing homelessness or just people who feel safe in their own community. We've noticed or have realized over the last few years that the homeless community um, really support and protect one another. And so if Wetaskiwin happens to be where the majority of the people experiencing homelessness are, then they come as well. And, that, and it becomes a, a regional issue. Uh, one of the things that I hear way too often is that it, it's not our problem because they're not from here. Well, if you're experiencing homelessness in Wetaskiwin, you are essentially an issue that I have to deal with. I can't just put somebody on a bus and or numerous people on a bus and ship them out of the community. And it's not serving any purpose. It's not addressing the social needs that happen to be there. What we need to have is the social needs and the assistance available for where a person is looking for it. And it's gonna happen over and over and over again, but we still need to be ready to offer those that assistance. Yeah. And it can be as simple as just applying for assistance or getting an ID card or a health card or helping with undiagnosed or untreated medical needs. All of these issues that we're having with, with the population, our vulnerable population, still need those supports in place. And it doesn't matter where I think they should be or where the general public thinks they should be. At what point do we tell somebody that they can't be somewhere? If somebody told me I couldn't go into St. Albert for whatever reason, it, that's not fair. So what, how or why should I be able to tell somebody that they can't come into my community because they don't fit what my community or any community feels they want yeah, being I mean, outside of the stores or wherever. Just not an be. option, right? Yeah. It reminds me of the, the, the Ralph Klein solution that he proposed back in the day is just give everybody a one-way bus ticket to BC. And uh, <laughs> we found like a lot of citizens in Alberta were like, that's a great idea. Not really how it works. Uh, we can't talk about homelessness without talking about affordable housing. And these are some striking numbers. I think that it's important to provide some perspective here for people that are hearing this. So, you know, when you when you talk about a shortage of affordable housing in our home province of Alberta, and I would imagine this is the case across the country, but experts are describing it as a chronic shortage. And what that means is that almost 165,000, more than 164,000 households in Alberta 164,000 households, not people, households are in core housing need. Well, what does that mean? It means that the home does not meet one or more standards for housing adequacy, right? So it requires repairs or it's too crowded or affordability is an issue. In other words, I mean, get this, more than half a million, let's call it half a million households in Alberta pay more than 30% of their households before tax income on housing. That's a problem. And more than 24,000 households are on provincial affordable housing wait lists. 24,000. I was trying to, in my mind, paint a picture that I can, like terms I can understand. I mean, think of actual paper in your hand. How long, how many pieces of paper a list of 24,000 households would be? It'd be way thicker than a phone book. And these are, these are people, a lot of times children, elderly folks, people on fixed income with no options. So I hope that this provides a perspective of how significant or how serious this issue is. It's not a few hundred people here or there. And even if it was, they're still human beings, right? 
So, Mayor Heron, where does this movement start? Obviously, a collaborative approach is important, but also, you know, you're looking out for St. Albert. That's your number one job. That's what you were elected to do. So where does it start? I think it's important um, to understand how linked all these topics we're going to talk about today, crime and addictions and housing, are. Uh, there's, there's Homeward Trust has done a study that said that for every dollar invested into affordable housing, we will save four dollars in um, the justice and health system. But you know, and quite honestly, Ryan, it's much sexier to stand beside a couple of RCMP officers and announce we're going to give some, some cops to a task win than it is to invest in a counselor. But if you had that counselor in, in front of somebody, you might not get to the crime. So. It, it's it's a political game and all that we continue to ask for is that FCSS program that Angela talked about earlier is all about preventative programming. It hasn't had an increase in, in the funding in five years. And obviously our population has grown and the social issues have grown. And so St. Albert continues to over-subsidize it. I'm sure with Tasquin and, and, and Alberta Beach are as well. So it's prevention. It, it, it's, it's get people healthy. And, and we did talk, it's quite often Indigenous and you know, that that is generational. And so some of the reconciliation efforts are going to be helping. I'm sure Angela's going to talk to you about the Pope coming to Alberta Beach in a minute. And he's also actually going down to Tyler's neck of the woods. So these are all these are all very linked. In St. Albert, I, I desperately want to build a youth transitional home. We did a, the full study. Um, I don't know if you've ever met Dean Kripperwhite. He's the head of the Mustard Seed. He chaired it for me. All I want to do is put up 10 beds and take care of my youth because what happens if, if they get into Edmonton and get sucked into a lifestyle that they're not quite accustomed to in the big city, you know, there's gangs, there's more access to drugs, et cetera. It, they end up chronically homeless. Happens so let's, fast. Let's take care of them when they're young. Yeah. Um, Angela, or, you know, Mayor Duncan, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm asking that I'm I, whatever. No, I feel like I'm asking in a snide way. I'm wondering if the, if the two mayors, uh, if Gandam and Duncan, if you're getting new highways now that the Pope's coming down. But but <laughs> <laughs> silver linings, I guess. Uh, no, but but seriously, the, the significance of that visit uh, in the context of reconciliation, how important is it to your community or is it important? I mean, absolutely, it's important to our community reconciliation. Um, has long been on everybody's radar. Oh, to be clear, let me not to interrupt you. I don't mean is reconciliation important. I mean, how important is the Pope's visit? Obviously, reconciliation is important. Yeah. Oh, did she freeze? I think we. I think she did her connection freeze. Yeah, I thought she was just giving me the look. Um, okay, I was like, oh boy, she is just still there. She is, Mayor. You froze up for a second there. My apologies. Go, go ahead. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm sorry, I, I lost you entirely. No, there. it's okay. That's uh, something something really something line? really something really funny just happened. I, I asked you, I was I I, I could have re I could have done the question better, and I was asking you how important the Pope's visit was in the context of reconciliation. I wanted to clarify that that I acknowledge reconciliation's very important, but how important or how significant is the Pope's visit specifically? It is very, very significant, not just in our region, which it is, we do share our lake with um, the Alexis Nakota Sioux Nation, they actually call it Wakamne, which means God's Lake. This has been a traditional gathering ground for Indigenous peoples since time immemorial. So the Pope coming to the pilgrimage is a, a huge step towards reconciliation. It's welcomed by our community. And I know it's welcomed by the larger Indigenous and Catholic community as well. It's very important. 
Mayor Gandam, you also will see uh, at least relatively close to Wetaskiwin that 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 papal visit. How how is the community preparing for it, and where's your head at, and, and what are you hearing from Indigenous leaders that I'm that I'm sure you correspond with on, a, on at least a semi regular basis? Yeah, so it's really important for us to support our community to the south with Muskochis, and that's something that we've been focusing on for a number of years. And the papal visit is just another way for us to be able to support. Uh, our neighbors in Muskochis. I actually had breakfast with Chief Urbanskin this morning and had a really good chance or a really good opportunity to talk to him about the importance of it is in their community. And he said, in the community, it's probably half and half in support and maybe some reluctance and questioning behind it. Yeah. The uh, the roads being built or, or fixed in Muskochis uh, was part of the province's plan or part of the province's um, work with reconciliation as well to be partners and stewards within the, the community of Muskochis to make sure, and in Alberta Beach, to make sure that something that they've been working on and asking for for decades that is finally happening goes as, as well as it can. I know that Chief Willie Littlechild was doing his visit with the Pope and had has been asking for 20 years um, to come and visit and see the residential school sites and to, to pray with the people and to pray with the Indigenous that um, had lived through that. And Chief Ermanskin is one of those individuals who attended residential schools and his story is absolutely amazing and heartbreaking. But I think it's really important, not only for the community of Muskochis, but for any community in Alberta to be able to support the First Nations and the, uh, the travesties and the, the hardships that they're gonna continue to work through. Mayor Heron talked about the intergenerational trauma that is definitely tied to why we're um, so deep in the social issues that we have in each of our communities that if we're not addressing those things and we're not offering support, then we're never going to make any change. And reconciliation is just one small part of that. And I'm happy to happy and honored to be the mayor of the city who's working on building relationships and bridges with our neighboring communities. Yeah. We, we talked to uh, Connie Walker, uh, journalist and podcaster, just a few days ago. She did that uh, Gimlet Media Spotify podcast called Stolen Surviving St. Michael's uh, about the St. Michael's Indian Residential School in Saskatchewan. And, and just a, unbelievable. People have to listen to that interview and they have to listen to her podcast. I just implore people to do it. It's remarkable. But, you know, mayors, one of, one of the things you consider, I know this isn't lost on you, is that, that a lot of this work that you're doing and I know that you're the faces of this, but there's a lot of people working with you as well. We want to acknowledge them. This is a lot of this is not like it's not going to pay off, so to speak, or, or de- deliver immediate returns next week or next month. Uh, a lot of this has to be literally in 50 or 100 years. Uh, if we want it, if we want to be able to look back, if we want our great grandchildren to be able to look back and be proud of how we manage some of these challenges, some of these travesties, like you said, Mayor Ganim, it has to start now, right? I mean, Mayor Duncan, you must have to make a lot of noise out of, I mean, there, there, there's like just such a wonderful uh, element of, of living in a village or a hamlet. I mean, you, you don't get a lot of the, you know, the big city noise. You don't get, I mean, it's just some fabulous uh, parts of uh, angles of living in a community that size. But, but do you also have to kind of like speak up and, and have your voice be heard if we're talking about things like affordable housing, like, like you know, does Alberta Beach, factor into the mix where you say hey like we need resources here too we need affordable housing in alberta beach and then how, how do you make that argument how does that work for someone in a, a relatively smaller community like yourself 
Well, it is it is challenging. If we want to make progress, we definitely need to make a lot of noise in a lot of our communities, smaller communities, mine in particular, but in many others, we have single family dwellings and that's it. So some of the things that we're doing is we're looking at our land use bylaw, making sure that it allows for more housing options um, in different areas of the community. We've rezoned our, our main street to allow commercial on the bottom and residential on the top to try and encourage um, more housing uh, downtown that's more apartment style. We've allowed for secondary suites on our um, residential areas. So we're doing what we can to encourage more affordable housing options. But for us, a lot of it comes down to policy and not government funding. And I'll reiterate that if, if somebody in my community doesn't have access to affordable housing or is having um, a, a housing situation, often they do end up into the larger centers where there is affordable housing. And that takes them away from the community support network, the family, the friends that they have out here, so that they can go into Edmonton so that they can afford to live. So uh, it's important that rural communities are talking about it, that we're looking at what we can do through policy and procedure, but also that the province is looking at us and helping us find other solutions. Mayors, we talk a lot about the opioid crisis. Uh, still, it's not enough. <laughs> I think it's fair to say, if we look at the numbers of Canadians, Albertans, that are dying on a daily basis, it's completely unacceptable. It's heartbreaking. Uh, after I talk to you, I'm going to read an email here from a mom named Angie who wrote in to talk about her son. It's powerful stuff. And of course, this all factors in, right? I mean, you know, drug use is... is uh, sort of a, a part of the consideration that needs to be had. It needs to be part of the conversation around the so-called social issues. So Mayor Heron, uh, we know that there's evidence-based approaches to handling the opioid crisis, to trying to save people's lives. Uh, this provincial government, I don't know how much you want to get into it. Feel free. Um, I'll be happy to get into it. Has, uh, has denied and ignored um, and uh, created policy in the face of evidence um, I think this premier's ideological bend, his brother's career, uh, how his brother makes his money uh, is is in detox. And that's where this government is really doubling down. Uh, there's nothing wrong with detox as one tool in the toolbox. But this government has pulled funding and closed down supervised consumption sites that have proven uh, to have saved thousands of lives in Canada over the years. So what works with regards to the opioid crisis? What are your three communities doing what's not being done that needs to be done what do albertans need to be talking about in the context of drug poisonings and the opioid crisis mayor heron yeah sure it's important to start off with the opioid crisis is affecting everyone it's um every socioeconomic level um every every gender it, it's it's sad and you know in the past quite often um there's a stigma related to to drug use, et cetera, but we need to get past that stigma. It's 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 now called drug poisoning, not drug overdoses. It's it's it definitely is a poison, and and it's Saint Albert, generally a, a, a fairly wealthy community. It's everywhere in Saint Albert. Uh, my kids are 23 and 21, and their friends, all they've lost friends, and it, it, it's the kids that I saw growing up, and it's. It's heartbreaking, and you're absolutely right. It's the supervised consumption sites that um, are not sexy. They are not politically easy to put in. They, you know, they do attract uh, some, you know, surrounding neighbors and their objections. But we, leadership has to be strong, and they have to. They really have to stick 
with what works. And those are the kind of things. And then of course, I'm going to get right back to prevention. It's always about prevention and providing those supports before the problem even gets in, in place. And I was listening a bit before with your previous guests, the, the doctor, and it's leading to a, an outright crisis in the health system, especially around EMS. Tyler is um, a first responder, a medical first responder. He can probably talk to you about arriving on scene to some of these overdoses and it's heartbreaking and it's it's wrecking the mental health of our first responders you know they're arriving in in the emergency rooms it's it, the doctors in the emergency rooms are, are stressed out so it's such a systemic issue and the answers are are in front of us and the, the government has to step up and this is this is one area that i would say they have definitely failed mayor mm. gannam Safe consumption sites or supervised consumption sites in conjunction with preventative measures, in conjunction with working with the youth so that you give somebody the opportunity um, from the very beginning to understand the risks and what happens uh, not addressing or not dealing with mental health and how that could lead to addictions. It's it's scary. I can't tell you the, the number of times. I've over 20 years experience with our fire service and for probably 17 or 18 of those years, 17 probably, where I wasn't dealing with drug poisonings or drug overdoses. And now I can't tell you how many times I've personally administered Narcan or Naloxone or have been um, in the rotation of CPR. One of the things they don't teach you when you're doing CPR is what to do when somebody opens their eyes and looks at you because you're not trained or prepared for that. It's an amazing feeling, but you have no idea what what is going on. I've responded to calls everywhere. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, and um wealthier neighborhoods or the uh, lower income neighborhoods. I've responded to drug poisonings in all of those houses. So Mayor Heron's right. It's it's absolutely everywhere. I was talking to uh, Mayor Acker from Spruce Grove the other day, who is now experiencing um, higher numbers of people experiencing homelessness as well, which you would never think about in communities like St. Albert or Spruce Grove. It caught me off guard when he asked me if I would come and speak to their council about the struggles that they're going through with that as well. And it, it happens from something as simple as uh, me slipping and falling and hurting my back, getting put on painkillers, and then becoming addicted to it. And then from then on out, without the supports in place, how do I get through that? And how do I not end up um, ending up homeless or with a drug addiction or losing my jobs and, and not being able to provide for my families? It's, it's scary. It's real. And if we're not addressing it early, it's just going to multiply. Both Edmonton and Calgary and probably the majority of the major centers in Alberta have seen a double in numbers of people experiencing homelessness. And that's just through COVID. So double? Let's double. Absolutely double. That's the and lead. That's, an, that's the yeah. lead. We buried the lead today. That's on me. Yeah. Double. Doubled. Jeez. And so we were overtaxed before in terms of trying to find solutions for um affordable housing or mental health and addiction supports. Now we're, we're twice what we were before and we were way behind when this started pre pandemic. So I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how to get through it, 
but if we don't start being more aggressive in how we're handling it and how we're going to tackle the the crisis that we're in, yeah. we're going to be so far behind in another year, another five years, and then 10 years from now. Oh, man. It's scary. You know, one of the things I can't stand uh, oftentimes, like when dialogue or discourse really gets like into the gutter and into the ditch, and, and, and it's not happening right now, by the way, to be clear, but but people's like, it's not my problem. It's not our fault. It's their fault. And everybody starts pointing pictures like you're the one that we're not the ones. That, right. But it is also important to point out where jurisdiction lies and who's responsible, like like technically, actually responsible. And so provinces may receive health transfers from the feds, for example, but provinces are responsible for health care. Now, there's been some dust up. Real talkers will remember with changes to the Municipal Governance Act. I believe that we talked to this panel about that uh, several panels ago. Uh, extremely controversial. As a matter of fact, because it gets in the weeds and it's technical and it's contract and, le- and, and like the majority of the pop, it just goes over their heads. They don't care, really. Their eyes gloss over when we start talking about changes to the MGA, but it was ridiculous because you've got, for example, a premier, Jason Kenney, who demands that Ottawa stay out of their business, but then meddled into the business of all the municipalities when it came to things like mask mandates and the like. So it's been messy with regards to jurisdictional matters over the past couple of years, and and as a matter of fact, quite a bit longer than that. Now, the reason for this preamble is for me to point out that health is a provincial responsibility. It is a provincial jurisdiction, full stop. But right now, my impression is that municipalities are addressing this problem because the provincial solutions don't seem to be working. Uh, Mayor Duncan, does that apply as well in Alberta Beach? I mean, I suspect you're going to tell us you're not immune to seeing the impact of this drug poisoning crisis just because your community is quaint and a little bit smaller than the big centers. What do you see? I would love to tell you that I'm immune to it, but no, unfortunately, it's as much a problem in rural Alberta and small town Alberta as it is in the major centers. Again, with the key difference being that we have no access to resources out here. Um, I personally have had, since the COVID-19 pandemic began, three family members die of drug poisoning. So it is affecting absolutely everybody. Um, Sorry, that's a tough one to talk about. Um, unfortunately, it's another problem that we do tend to ship into the cities. So you talk about it being not my problem. Well, that's that's our solution is is to to send them places that there are some sort of supports. And a lot of it does start with lack of mental health supports. We've recently been discussing in my community how we can expand mental health supports. And again, it comes back to a lack of funding. We looked at our options through FCSS. And if we were to move our funding in FCSS to help provide more mental health supports, well, do we cut family supports? Do we cut supports to seniors? Where do we cut so that we can focus on mental health supports? There's just not funding available to deal with that. And that ties into the larger issue of of funding for um, all medical in rural Alberta. You know, we don't have access to healthcare. We don't have access to doctors. We're struggling to recruit. So it's the, the more we talk, the the bigger the, the situation gets, and it's all very inter intertwined. I want to ask the three of you about, uh, with regards to racism, hate crimes, and victims of crime, and we'll wrap our conversation here. I really appreciate your time. Uh, we got to you a few minutes late because the Dr. Brad Martin thing was just, I mean, that guy's just speaking his truth. Um, and we want to certainly have a show where the reputation gets around, where we'll dedicate a little bit more time to something that demands that time. But I suspect you all have meetings coming up. Uh, in 2020, Canadian police, police across the country, uh, reported 2,700 
specifically 2,669 criminal incidents motivated by hate. That was the largest number recorded since data became available in 2009. So it could be the largest numbers from way before 2009, but they only started compiling the data in that year. In 2019, there were just under 1,600 police-reported crimes motivated by hatred of a race or an ethnicity. That was up by 80% over the year prior. Now, it's safe to say that these recent increases in racism and hate-motivated crimes have adversely affected Albertans' public safety and well-being. We've heard that from community members here, from real talkers, uh, from uh, you know hijabi women that have written in, to indigenous people that have written in, to members of the LGBTQ2S plus community that have written in to talk about being targeted. So the provincial government does have or is working on, let me say, an anti-racism action plan. Uh, using that as context, how are the three of you wrapping your minds around these statistics? What are you seeing in your communities and what needs to be done about it? Mayor Heron, we'll start with you. Sure. You know, uh, hate crimes, crime is generally a federal jurisdiction, the criminal code, but there's a, there's a, there's a, a thin line uh, that's, that some people don't cross when it becomes criminal, you know, the, the screaming and the yelling and the swearing, and it is, it is a sad state that our our society is in right now um, that municipalities are bringing in hate bylaws. You know, it, it's it's honestly uh, Edmonton has one, and some of the bigger centers do. And Saint Albert, you know, I'm getting pressure to do it here. How do you legislate behavior? And it, it's it's um it's a very sad look at society today and and there is politicians out there that are enabling it and that's what's sad and I, you know we could talk about what's going on south of the border but it's happening in our own uh, in our own communities uh, you know there's current sitting mlas that perpetuate that hate and and that that is a problem mayor and, are you talking about somebody in particular i i i am and you know me Ryan, i can't use names because i have to work with these people i'm i, I will never name call but but well how about we you have, shoot me a text when i'm talking to mayor gandam and then uh, and then i'll read the name how about that okay sure there's a few mlas that i could just i would like to put my hands around their neck and ring them to tell you the, the honest truth yeah uh, and angela knows exactly who i'm talking about but you know we have a surplus in this province right now and it, now is the time to have some targeted investment on where that money goes and to, to have a conversation about bringing back a ralph bucks type you know, give back to the Albertans is, is ridiculous. And and when when you've got three mayors here, they're screaming. Angel, if she could double her FCSS money, that would be forty thousand dollars. She would she would she would kiss the premier. Like these are these are small investments that we're asking for. To have, well, she might not kiss them. <laughs> so I think you know the the three of us, my entire board, are going to be very very targeted in the UCP leadership um, campaign making sure these issues are front and center and making sure that they are understood and and are, we will present the solutions to all of these leaders. And then, of course, we're having a provincial election in May and we'll be doing the exact same thing because of the, the solutions are there. They just need to be funded. And it's as simple as that. Mayor and Gant, you no, have a premier who screams at municipalities for raising taxes, but we're raising taxes to cover off what the province is not doing. Healthcare, ambulance, for an example, my fire department is all advanced 
or, or primary care paramedics that every fire truck, we've spent a fortune making sure they have advanced life support on them. And they're the ones getting to the overdoses and drug poisonings first because the ambulances aren't coming. So, and that's my bill. That's not the provinces. That's I'm, I'm taxing my St. Albert residents. So we have to raise taxes because that's our only, that's our only revenue source. Mm. And the the collaboration has been lacking. Yeah, I mean, it's like a, it's like a, the province is the deadbeat dad uh, that claims uh, that it has balanced its household budget by stopping child support payments. Like, I have said they've balanced it on the backs of municipalities. Yeah, yeah. So, like, congratulations, I guess. Mm. Uh, but you're just screwing over the municipalities who have no choice. But uh, you guys can't. You know, I, I I don't know if most people know this or not. But municipalities cannot cannot run deficit budgets. It's not an option. You can't you can't run a you know four hundred thousand dollar deficit in Wetaskiwin. You can't run a hundred fifty thousand dollar deficit in Alberta Beach. Right? It's not an option. Uh, Mayor Gannon, when you talk about your community, you're probably if you get off of this interview, you're like, why did he have to keep returning to this? But 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 you know, we talk, and it's not funny. I'm not making light of it. But you talk about you say we've got some of the you know the, the heaviest crime stats in the country. Uh, in Wetaskiwin, in the context of hate crimes, crimes fueled by racism, et cetera. Do you see that? Is that part of the conversation? Absolutely, it is. And the the sad part is, is that by definition, it's not always a crime. Prejudices and stereotypes um, for people in my community, regardless of where they come from, the color of their skin, uh, where they worship or if they worship, prejudices and stereotypes are are rampant and I, I throughout the province but definitely in Wetaskiwin and it's it's a matter of I, I hope leading by example and that's something that I've put a lot of time and effort into is to making sure that and it doesn't ju- it's not just with indigenous or first nations people or with the community of Muscogee it's with everybody that if leadership can work with leadership then why can't the communities work together and I get it. Like we're, if you're talking about generation or intergenerational trauma, we're also talking about generations of, of hate or un, not understanding another culture. And it's extremely frustrating. And I don't know how we're going to get past that. And it's not going to, it's not going to happen in my term as mayor, let alone in my, in my lifetime. But, but are you picking up on like, do you, do you, are you perceiving progress like do, do you see small yeah. you do i i do but i'm also putting in a great deal of effort for it as well so i can see the change i can see the the dynamic shift i can feel it i can feel it i don't know if my community as a whole feels or sees the same thing huh i think so, i think some do but I, we had uh, so getting back to the crime side of it we had a murder a week ago uh, young for young first nations boys. I think he was 19 or 20 years old. Um, I have no idea what the circumstances were, what led to it, but automatically it was, it was deemed a, a race crime or it was, uh, racially driven. Now I have no evidence to support that whatsoever. You're saying that's, that's from police. The, that's what police are saying. No, that's what the community is saying. I see. Okay. So I, I don't have any evidence to, to back that up whatsoever. And the worst thing you can do is speculate or assume what had happened or why it had happened. But if that's the initial thought from either community members in Wetaskiwin or community members from Muskwachis, then that tells me right there that there is a great deal of work left to be done if your first assumption of somebody who was murdered is that it was, it, it was racially driven. And it doesn't matter whether that happens in Wetaskiwin or Edmonton or Calgary or wherever it happens. It's... 
it's heartbreaking. And I don't know what a community can do to build that relationship or build that trust. Is there like, is there a, um, this is, I guess I'm asking you for some real talk. Um, is there like a palpable tension between Masquachis and Wetaskiwin? Like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not from that. I've never lived in that area. I've lived near that area. I don't want to assume anything. But is there like, is there a real energy, a uh, negative and, energy, or how would you describe it? And and for me, I don't think it's as bad as it was. Okay, uh, it, it has definitely been extremely tense. Uh, I, I don't think it's as tense now, but the fact that there is some kind of tension, um, regardless of how many people are feeling it, they're feeling it. And that can't be how two communities work together. The reason that Wetaskiwin has the amenities that they have is because Muscochise has a, a population of close to 20,000 people right now. And we have an amazing hospital. We've got, um, like just... Overall, the shopping that we can have in Wetaskiwin, the the schools that we have, all of the amenities that we have is because of a shadow population in and around Wetaskiwin. So the county of Wetaskiwin has a similar population to Wetaskiwin. That certainly helps. But when Muscochise doesn't have the shopping opportunities or the hospital or the doctors that Wetaskiwin has, that's the reason that we have what we have. And <laughs> neither community is moving. Neither community is going anywhere. And if we don't learn to live um, together and take advantage of some of the things that we have in our region because of our close proximity, we're missing out on a, a great deal of opportunity. And that's something that I'll keep pushing. I've got at least three years left of my term as mayor, and I'll keep pushing for that. And I, again, I go back to I'm not specifically saying that the relationship or the partnering has to happen with First Nations or Indigenous. I've got a large Filipino population here. When I moved here 30 years ago, there wasn't very many East Indian families here. My dad is full East Indian. I'm only half. But I've I've grown up dealing with the the racist, the racist and racial jokes. And you know, when I get out of high school, am I going to be driving the cab or am I going to be working at the 7-Eleven? Like, which at the time was funny and I could brush it off. But there are probably a lot of people who laugh on the surface but go home and feel like they don't belong in a community. And that's absolutely unacceptable no matter where you are. Yeah. You should feel safe, welcome, and inclusive inclu or included in the community that you're not only visiting or shopping in, but living in. You shouldn't have to go out and face things like that, regardless of where you're from. Hmm. Yeah. You know and Ron, I think it's important to note that populations in, in the towns and villages in Alberta are declining. And the, the, their sustainability is, is going to be hinged on, on the welcoming and inclusion of, of newly landed Canadians, immigrants. And so every resident in those town and village has to get over whatever prejudices they have and greet these people with a smile and welcome them to the community because that's, that's going to be the sustainability of Alberta. And uh, especially in the smaller towns and villages, they tend to land at the International Airport in Edmonton and Calgary. And they stay there, but we need to we need to get them out to the towns and villages. And it's Tyler and Kathy's and Angela's job to make them feel welcome. Yeah, we've had we've had uh, yeah. I've had really interesting conversations over the years with your uh, former colleague Barry Morshida, uh, former mayor of Brooks, who's talked a lot about Brooks. Brooks. Does a great job. Brooks yeah. has done, yeah, I mean, it, but it's a huge immigrant population in Brooks, mm -hmm. uh, and and but that's been part of that community's uh, lifeblood. Like it's I don't want to I don't know if it's fair to describe Brooks as dying on the vine, but like I've got family and friends that live there, and I've seen it. Um, so let me just say like just. Uh, 
I'm not blowing smoke. I mean it sincerely. And then Mayor Duncan, we'll give last word to you. But I'm just one of the reasons I'm so grateful for the. And there's a reason why we keep bringing you guys back. This panel, this Alberta Municipalities Real Talk Roundtable, is because you're seeing it. The audience is you're hearing it. You're seeing it. Um, these are civic. These are municipal political leaders that that actually like legitimately care about their communities. We're hearing Mary, Mayor Gandam's insights on racism in his community as someone who faced racism in his community. Um, you know, and, and I think of one of the things that I get concerned about you, I don't know about you, listener, but one of the things I get concerned about uh, to a great degree is the tone of politics these days. And like I talked about it earlier today with Dr. Bradley Martin, what works and what resonates with people. And it's not a good thing. The anecdotal evidence. And I mean, I know I use anecdotes on the show all the time and they're true. You know, I'll say, oh, my buddy told me this yesterday and that's one person's perspective. But that doesn't make it set in stone. God speak truth. That's a talking point. And I find that a lot of politics right now is people leveraging emotion and anecdotal evidence to steer people a certain way for that individual or that party's political gain. And it's getting us nowhere fast. And I really appreciate the spirit and the tone of these conversations because it's acknowledging the ills or the challenges that we're facing. But there's this optimism. There's almost a defiance in a way of people refusing to see their communities poisoned by some of these challenges. And so I wanted to say that while the three of you are still here, because I think it's important for you to feel the encouragement to know that the approach that you're taking to your politics, it might not be as bombastic. Uh, you know, there's not going to be a million and a half views of this interview. There'll be a good number, but not a million and a half because none of you are roasting people or saying these <laughs> inflammatory and divisive things. Uh, but you're approaching this with a responsible spirit, and I think that's so important. Um, Mayor Duncan, I want to give last word to you. As, as and, and whatever, if the other two of you want to jump in and offer something in closing, that's fine. But I just I'm taking you over time. I recognize your schedules are important. Uh, Mayor Duncan, everything we've said here, uh, in particular, racism, hate crime, etc. I know I keep returning to the theme, but I'm doing it on purpose. Let me guess: Alberta Beach not immune. No, we are definitely not immune. Uh, it's not something we'd like to talk about. It's something that I think historically my my community's kind of shied away from the conversations. Of course, with the upcoming papal visit, we're talking a lot more about racism, um, more in the concept of reconciliation. But I, I will say we saw, or we have seen over the last number of years, a significant increase in our visible minority population in our immigrant population, which sometimes you get a bit of pushback from the community when you have more immigrants and visible minorities coming in. But as Mayor Heron mentioned, it is vital to the economic sustainability of rural Alberta to make sure that our population stops declining and, and actually grows. And in order to do that, we need to talk about bringing in um, immigrants into rural Alberta. So it's a conversation that we do have to have. I will say that over COVID, when things got quite divisive, we did see more issues in our community. We were being so close to Edmonton and being a recreational community. We had a lot of people coming through, you know, six, 7,000 people a day coming through our downtown for a community of 900 some odd people. And, and we, so we did see um, racism kind of rear its ugly head on our, on our main beaches and in our parks. But my current council is tackling the issue specifically through reconciliation. And I think the first step is talking about it and acknowledging that there is an issue and that we do need to address it. 
I want to thank the three of you for your time today. Is there anything that any of you has just burning? You want to throw something out there before I wish you a good weekend? I'll just say thanks for those those kind closing words you just had, Ryan. I mean, Tyler and Angela and I are very good friends. And when we're behind closed doors, that's when you want to get us on the screen because we, we do talk about, <laughs> we bitch and we complain. And the hatred goes, you know, it goes towards you know faces that we don't recognize but it also goes to politicians and so i appreciate um those words that you just said because we are doing our darndest to be collaborative and respectful um mm. level of government yeah and, and it's a fine line right it's a fine yeah. line between like being courteous and respectful and uh not taking people's shit and uh when you can find that line that's a great line to walk uh we've been hearing from and speaking with um, her Worship, the Mayor of St. Albert, Kathy Heron, His Worship, the Mayor of Wetaskiwin, Tyler Gandum, and Her Worship, Angela Duncan, the Mayor of Alberta Beach. Have a fabulous weekend, the three of you, and thanks for doing this. Yeah, you have a good weekend too, Ryan. Enjoy yeah, the Thanks, summer. Ryan. Take yeah. care. You bet. Uh, that's our Alberta Municipalities Roundtable. We really appreciate that. That's a, It's so important to check in with different communities and understand what's shaking. We always go into OT with them, but it's just, I know. it's awesome. Like a lot of people think like mayors, leaders of communities is kind of being like centered on all their own problems. It's awesome that they're all friends. Totally. They all help each other. They all know that their communities impact each other, right? Yeah. And I, I always am amazed at like some of the stats from these small communities. Like, like you were saying, like double. Yeah. Double. Like, it's wild in two years. And just, yeah. Totally like, wild. They need more help. Yeah. Period. Mayor Gandam, something slipped under the radar. He said, he says, I'm mayor here for at least three more years, kind of hinting at maybe, <laughs> a, maybe a re-election bid. But I don't know. That wasn't on me to pursue at that point. Uh, we're going to get to trash talk in just a second. I'm also going to read Angie's email. It's a powerful one. We're going uh, the, into the, OT. The mom of a person who uses drugs. We're going way into OT today. I have a Red Bull. I'm good to go. Let's get it. Yeah. How's that Red Bull <laughs> sitting with you right now, by the way? Don't. Don't. It's sugar free. I put sugar free in the do fridge. Red Bull in the morning. This was no? the worst idea I've ever had. Yeah, all right. A little, a little shaky over here. Let's yeah, do you, some trash talk. Don't you need you need the vodka <laughs> to balance it out? That's why vodka. You need the you need the up and the down. The up and the down. Um, uh, Eden landscaping. They're like, did you really just roll heavy into our? Yeah, that's right. I did. I suspect that the the team that's working the shovels and all the other tools that they use to these custom landscapes they're probably crushing the odd red bull tons yeah limited time (laughs) start giving people cases of red bull as a thank you i don't know what that says eden landscaping specializes in the custom design and installation of landscapes in the edmonton area they've been doing it for more than two decades their skills have evolved from like basic projects to full scope magazine ready landscapes and they believe that well-designed and well-constructed landscapes should do more than just cross items off a wish list, right? It's a, a thoughtful balance. They want your vision to blend and work with a cohesive aesthetic direction. It doesn't just stand up over time. It evolves as it matures. The landscape design actually becomes more beautiful, more enjoyable as the years pass, right? As the perennials really grow, as the trees start to fill in, if you don't already have a landscape designer or an architect, they will find, guarantee, the right fit for your unique style. They contract it all and they only partner with the best. You can find Eden Landscaping online at landscapeedmonton.ca. 
Angie wrote in yesterday uh, following uh, my conversation with Mark Charrington, a human rights advocate. Mark is just an unbelievable guy. He's been a friend of mine for many years, and it felt like the right time to bring him on yesterday. We talked to a high-profile politician in Danielle Smith. I want to talk, talk to uh, an everyman, an every person, somebody who just every single day is pounding the pavement, taking calls on his personal cell phone, helping people. You know something, a number, you want to talk about stats, a number that I didn't drop in Mark's introduction yesterday that I thought I probably should. I tweeted about it later. He keeps track of who he helps. Uh, he keeps yeah. files. He wants to be able to look back on it. You see this over 30 years of advocacy. He figures he's helped 24,000 people. That's Unbelievable. Cool. So Angie writes in to talk at RyanJesperson.com. She says, I'm the founder of 4B Harm Reduction Society, and I'm a member of Mums Stop the Harm. You've heard them on the show before. Angie says, 4B is a nonprofit mobile street team and we focus on Edmonton's core in our home city. She says we hand out, um, you know, safer use supplies, snacks, water, naloxone that people can use to reverse drug poisonings, uh, even service navigation to the community. They connect people with resources. She says we also provide community training and harm reduction info to the public. So you want to learn how to administer naloxone? We should all be able to do it. You never know when you're going to need to know how to administer naloxone. This is our reality, friends. And she says what I'm most proud of is the connection we're able to share. You know, we're able to share information about drugs and, and what we're seeing in the community. And we try to bring back humanity where there isn't much. She says, my son has been a drug user uh, and he's currently without a home. He's here in the Edmonton City Center. He was in East Hastings, that district in Vancouver for many years. And this is kind of, I guess, my way of connecting with him and, and spreading some mom love. She says, I want to thank you for your interview with Mark yesterday, Charrington, and bringing the story of our community members and my child to light. And I appreciate it. There are no words to describe how bad it is out there. I've advocated for my son for many years, but under this government's recovery-based care, accessing help for my child has been almost impossible, and I fear I will lose him soon. Imagine typing that. She says, I wish people understood that these are somebody's these are people. These are somebody's someone. And it affects so many people, it's heavy. So when I see people or when I see shows like Real Talk telling these stories, it gives me a bit of hope because things are pretty bleak right now. Thanks for everything and take care. That from Angie. We love you and thank you for this, Angie. Now, every Friday, we wrap up our week of shows with... Uh, an opportunity to blow off a little bit of steam. And John, as has been the case with the show today, going overtime, I have some water here beside me because this trash talk is going to go overtime as well. People are all fired up based on a couple of interviews we had on the show this week. This is presented by our friends at Local Environmental Services. You can find them online. Just visit the Sponsors tab on our website. It's a tradition we call Trash Talk! All right, this one from Steph, who says, I love Real Talk. I love Supriya, and I love Erica Ifill that was on the day, and I love your editorial board, and I love Johnny, and I love all of it. And she says, but I'm pissed. She says, I call bullshit on your conversation about Edmonton oiler Evander Kane. If any woman has photographed evidence of an assault by an athlete, then that athlete is a criminal, not a badly beho behaved man boy. 
10 years from now, we're going to look back and realize how wrong it was to view these people as athletes first or athletes with flaws or athletes with problems who get to skate, as in skate the law, just like any other man. No means no and a whole lot more, says the woman who's watching women's rights fall and regress. Is it okay? What? Because you can score goals, you can make touchdowns, you can hit home runs, you can make your team a lot of money. No, it's not okay. And these junior hockey players from Team Canada with that gang assault must face consequences. Why are we even having this conversation? She says, forgive me if this is not super professional, uh, but sometimes she says, you gotta speak out. That from Steph, and I agree with you, Steph. Uh, This one from Megan, who says, Ryan, Johnny, I've been mulling over your Evander Kane discussion. I was going to leave it, but I have to say it. We are all the reason why toxic guys keep playing in the NHL. We are the reason for the Chicago Blackhawks and Evander Kane and a woman being gang raped by the Canadian junior team of whom by process of elimination, a lot of these guys are playing in the NHL right now. She says in a lot of other stories, we, says Megan, enable behavior. We have adopted that win at all costs mentality. We buy tickets, merch, we watch the games on TV, we listen to the sports shows, etc. There is zero incentive for any organization or player to change their behavior. There are no consequences because organizers know that people will keep tuning, tuning in and buying stuff and it's shameful. In fact, shame on all of us. She says, I was guilty too. I was a ride or die fan of the Vancouver Canucks for most of my life. I lived in Vancouver during the last cup run. It was awful to go downtown for work and see the destruction the next morning because of a fucking game. Ride or die ended for me there. She says, so where did we all get it so wrong? She says, Hockey Canada, the league, its players, commentators, reporters do not care about domestic violence. They don't seem to care about criminal activity, racism, homophobia. Do not care. I can't stomach it any longer. She says, now I'm in Edmonton, and you can catch me at Stingers Basketball, FC Edmonton Soccer, and Riverhawk Baseball games. You will not see me at an Oilers game. I loved hockey, and it did not love me back. That from Megan. What about this one from Christy, who wrote in to say, she's gone off the rails, completely off the rails. She used to be such a smart, practical woman. Holy shit. That from Christy. I wonder who she's talking about. How about this one from Brad, who wrote in to say, Jesperson, this fixation, your conversation with Danielle Smith on turning everything into a mental health crisis. My mental health was affected by my government's complete incompetence and disregard of science. Had they been serious about this emergency, this impact on kids, the impact on Albertans would be less. Says this constant comparison to like COVID and influenza is so disingenuous. The world doesn't isolate at home for the flu season and fuck you to anyone that stays on this. Oh yeah, and everything is the federal government's fault, Alberta freedom. I want to fight somebody, says Brad. Brad, don't. He says, education. If a mom with nine kids wants a professional, send them to school. Imagine the disparity in education if we start schooling kids in people's basements. Can I even believe I'm writing this, wonders Brad? And then he goes on to just say, this big tent idea, it's clearly too big. Some people need to be shunned. This misinformation is harming people. Rebel media is not right-leaning media. It's an activist group. It's the green piece of the right wing. That's going to get some people going. He says, Danielle Smith is going to be so good for her lawyer pals. He says, how can I discuss this with a person that subscribes to the ideas or shares commonalities with Theron Flurry? I can't form the words to express how shitty that interview made me feel about everything. That from Brad. 
What about this from Tyler, who says, My body, my choice, right? Equating women's reproductive rights to the right to choose a vaccine. As Jespo pointed out, pregnancy is not contagious. Being sexually assaulted and choosing to terminate the pregnancy is akin to somebody, what, not being able to fly because they weren't vaccinated? That's the logical conclusion here. I don't have a uterus. I'm not qualified to comment on somebody's choices for their reproductive health, but it seems to me that some of these people have no concept of how vaccines work, so kindly drink a nice glass of shut the hell up! Give your head a shake. What's next? Flat Earth support? People so gullible thinking the Earth is a sphere? Sheeple. What are we going to do? Ban contractions? The use of apostrophes? Blaming Ottawa? Liberal elites pushing a grammar agenda? That from Tyler, who took it in an interesting direction out of the end. And Sharon finally wraps up by saying, and I love that she gives us the context, I'm sitting in my room eating chocolate-covered pretzels and thinking of that insane interview you just did with Danielle Smith. This is the first time I've emailed you. I'm so sick and tired of the adversary approach to politics. Blame Rachel Notley. Blame Justin Trudeau. Blame science. Blame Alberta Health Services. When does the time come for accountability? Didn't Jim Prentice tell people to look in the mirror? One thing that's always overlooked, we are the politicians' bosses. We elect the fuckers. Are we going to let somebody like that come into our house and be a homewrecker? Huh? Change the curriculum and then allow kids to be taught like they live in the 1800s? Why? Because one woman mentioned it to her? And then attack Alberta Health Services? I mean, we all question Dr. Hinshaw and the provincial government even more. But when will this chaos end? When everybody stands up and votes their asses out of here with their tails between their legs. Thank you, she says. That feels better. And uh, she says, uh, uh, by the way, I'd still love to meet you for coffee sometime. That from Sharon. Hey, you never know, Sharon. We're still looking forward to the first ever Real Talk tailgate party. Coming up next week, we're going to get back to a lot of the issues, uh, not just national issues, not just provincial issues, but some of the big international stories we need to be following. We're going to follow up on some stories that have resonated with you. And of course, we'll have more of your emails sent into talk at ryanjesperson.com. If something on a positive note has made your day, we want to hear about it. You can be featured on Monday in Positive Reflections presented by Kubi Energy. Stay safe out there this weekend, everybody. May your tee shots be straight. May your barbecuing be perfect. And we'll see you back here live or later Monday morning on Real Talk.